we ask our missionaries if they have any special one-time projects that we can help support. And so they come to us with these projects, and then we as a church gather around. We have one Sunday where we focus on those projects, and you guys give above and beyond. We, for that one Sunday, on top of our normal giving, you guys gave $12,000 to meet these special projects for one time. One of them I wanted to update you on is from the Krams, who are in Cambodia, uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia, which is the capital of Cambodia. They asked for funds specifically to support orphans, and particularly young women in that capital city. And I wanted to read you this update from them. It's entitled, Pray for, I think it's Ratanya. And let, let me read this to you. This is from a, an email that I got from them just last month. Ratanya's mother died several years ago, and her father is HIV positive and has the mind of an eight-year-old. While he has loved and taken care of his daughter as best as he could, there were signs of greedy relatives looking to sell her. So we brought her to Phnom Penh to live and learn in a safe house for trafficked girls. She had been there for two years and was doing great. She learned the trade of doing nails and greeting cards and was learning to roast coffee beans. But at age 17, she was almost ready to leave and start her own business when she was duped into believing that she could make a lot of money working for a wealthy family from a friend she had met while working. Where Tanya snuck away from the home one evening and never returned. This friend sold her to a wealthy family who saw her as their property. They basically had her under personal house arrest, not letting her leave, and then transported her seven hours out of Phnom Penh to work in their personal coffee shop, having no intention of paying her or let her come and go as she, she would choose. We did not hear from her for three weeks and feared the worst, as way too often this situation ends up with girls sold into prostitution, often overseas. Thankfully, God knew her whereabouts and had protected Britannia. She was negotiated for, released, and returned to her father, but this story may not be over as threats have been made, and now the rich family is demanding her back. They've obviously lost the money they paid for her and cannot claim her legally, but due to corruption in the government and police, rich people can pay off the police if they're indicted, and the poor remain in fear of retribution. The poor cannot pay for police protection, thus they typically do not get it. And then she says this line that I want you to know. She says, we know that our God is sovereign and we can trust him no matter how evil things get. She asks that we pray for peace to reign in all their hearts and for justice to be done. Praise God for protecting Ratanya from further harm. We know that God is sovereign, that he has authority over everything that happens in my life and in my world. No matter how evil things get, no matter how many little girls get sold into forced labor and prostitution, no matter how many rich people can buy off police officers, no matter how much life tells us that evil people live without consequences, no matter how evil things get. My question today is a question that I think is not often asked enough in churches, and we're going to ask that and many more awkward questions in the week to come is this. How can our faith survive? How can our faith in an all-good all-powerful God survive life in a world where evil 
seems unstoppable. Where it seems that there's no justice, where little girls can be sold into forced labor and prostitution, and where godless people seem untouchable. Now, thankfully, we don't live in Cambodia. And we generally don't have to fear our little girls being sold. We generally don't have to fear rich people who can buy off the police. And thanks to God, we've moved beyond these gross evils of, of a primitive place like Cambodia. Our evils are, are much prettier here. We, we call our evils things like personal freedom. We, we send our evils through, through the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and then we mass market it. You know, we, we don't have the problem of, of our little girls being deceived and sold. We have the problem of our little girls being deceived and selling themselves through pornography or giving themselves away, thinking that they're actually believing that they're no more than a sex object. We, we don't have the problem of uh, rich people buying off police officers. We have the problem of rich people who can afford a legal battle that you can't afford, so you just give up. So we don't face the gross evils that Cambodians face, but, but I still ask, how can our faith survive? How can our faith in an all-good, all-powerful God survive in a life in which evil seems unstoppable. Our text for today is going to be Psalm 9 and 10. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. It's both 9 and 10, which is kind of one psalm, kind of not. Two weeks ago, I told you that the psalms are going to invite us and at times force us to ask these horrible, horrible types of questions. It's going to lead us into this, what I call a hard conversation with God, with Jesus. Today's going to be a great example the, the Psalms are going to t teach us how to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. And this kind of raw, embarrassing, gritty type of honesty, I know is not the type of thing that we're used to in church. So it could get awkward at times. But Jesus seems to think that honesty, that being honest about who we are and being honest about who God is, is a prerequisite for us to find real healing, real forgiveness, real health, real reconciliation, and ultimately to be part of his real mission. That if we don't have that honesty, if we're not honest with ourselves and we're not honest to God, well, then we have nothing to work with. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the Psalms. And they are going to invite us to honesty and self-understanding and self-examination that we're not used to. That in our modern suburban sensibilities, things that we don't talk about. We're going to see passion and depression, doubt and faith, love and hatred, freedom and guilt, burning anger and inexpressible peace all together. That these Psalms are, believe it or not, just as complex as we are. So this week is really an introduction week. 
this this psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 9 and 10 together, become what, what many scholars call the first complete psalm. And what they mean by that is this is the first psalm where all the major themes of the psalms are tied together. And it works in in the way the psalms that are laid, they're laid out that a lot of scholars think that this really is supposed to be an introductory psalm to teach you, like prepare you as you pray through the psalms in the order they're in. When you get to 9 and 10, it prepares your heart for everything that's about to come in the next 150 psalms total. So I thought this would be a good place to start. And it's going to ask us this very, very penetrating question about how do we believe in an all-powerful, all-good God when our world is full of unstoppable evils. Before we dive into this, uh, I need to warn you that you're going to feel uncomfortable, not just today, but for the next seven weeks. I mean, there's going to be times where it's just going to get weird. We're going to talk about like breaking people's arms and wanting to smash their face and lusting after people. We're going to talk about envy and we're going to talk about things that we we just don't talk about in church. And just as part of the prerequisite for that, why we're going to do that, I want to remind you quickly what I said two weeks ago, and it's simply this. These psalms, do you know what they were originally designed for? This. Public worship. That God said, there's a place where I want you to go, where I want you to be able to just vent and spew and cry out to me with my people. There's a safe place that I'm creating where God's people will come together and they can ask any question and they can say anything and they can say where they're at while they're there because it's going to be a safe place. A place where it's safe to struggle. Because we're among God's people. Now I know all of your experiences in church up to this point probably have not yet reinforced that. The church is usually a place where you, the girls put on makeup and the guys look good and you cover up all of your mistakes and your problems. And so that's partially why we're going to preach this series. The next thing I wanted to point out is, is a, give you a really helpful, what I think is a helpful categories for how we think about our emotions and our experience when we come to the Psalms. Uh, there's a there's a well-known pastor and author named Tim Keller who um, who gives us kind of three categories for how people usually process or think about their emotions. So here's the question that he says. He says there's three basic ways modern people deal with their raw emotions and strong desires. And so the question is, is how do I deal with my personal experiences and my, then the emotions that flow out of these? And he says the first way you deal with it is what he calls just the secular way. And the answer is, how do I deal with these strong, raw emotions? And he says, the secular way is this. You embrace it. You encourage it. You express it. It's who you are. That in some ways, your, your experience, if it's your personal experience, nothing can trump it. If it's how you feel, then nothing can trump it. In some ways, you're experiencing your emotions in this view they are sovereign. They rule your life. They define who you are as a person. The, I think probably the clearest example of this is what how we talk about in our culture falling in love. So someone's been married for 10, 12, 15 years. They, they stood in front of a pulpit like this. And there was a pastor there who opened the Bible who asked them to swear an oath before God and these witnesses that they would love and honor this other person. But then years go by and they say, I didn't ask for it. I didn't mean it. I just fell in love with this other person. 
Now, now that I've fallen in love with this other person, it would be a lie if I didn't go live with them. I'd be living a lie if I just tried to continue in this marriage, even though I swore an oath to God and other people that I would. Because I've fallen in love and falling in love, well, my emotions rule me. They make the decision for me. So that's the first way. Now, the problem with this is that if you make your emotions sovereign, the scriptures are going to clearly teach that the heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17, 9. They're also going to teach that our natural or fleshly desires are actually waging war against us. Romans 7.23 So if this is true, what the scriptures actually say about this, then your authentic experiences and emotions and feelings, while they might be absolutely true in the way you feel, they could also be absolutely authentically twisted and perverted and wrong. So you can authentically feel something that is authentically perverted. Okay? The second view, the first view is the secular view. The second view is equally bad, but on the other end of the spectrum. And it's what Keller calls the way of religiosity. So how do I deal with my personal experiences, my emotions, and and all this raw, strong feelings that I have? You deny them. So when you come into that, that church's beloved, we are gathered here to talk about only what I tell you you may talk about. So, so if someone asked a question in that context, how can the world be so full of evil if God is all powerful? They say, we don't ask that type of question. If you say, why do I feel hatred and lust and greed and envy? They say, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't struggle with that in here. If you ask them, um, what do you do with those desires that are just wicked and evil? They say, you push them down. Push them down and eventually you don't even know they're there anymore. The problem with this, of course, is that, well, ultimately religiosity just fails. These these laws, these rules that try and limit and stifle everything you feel and think, they fail. And specifically, religiosity fails because it does not address the deep issues, the deep brokenness, the sin in our hearts. If you were here for the Sermon on the Mount series, you know that Jesus does not care about your actions if you're ignoring your heart. That it's a heart issue. That he wants to deal with what's really going on in there. The next is that religiosity fails because it's a system that depends upon rules and laws to save us. That there's a flood of doubt and anger and lust and hopelessness and sin and depression coming towards us in our hearts and in our world. And this just tries to put up little laws to stop it. Let me give you a, a picture that I think from this last week might be poignant. It's that trusting laws to stop this flood of emotions is like like a beachfront uh, store owner who has like a handful of sandbags and they're placing it there as Sandy's coming. Okay, well, that might work great. Sandbags are useful. They're helpful in certain contexts, right? I mean, there are, it does channel water. It can stop some some little little storms. But when the superstorm comes with a 12-foot wall of water, what good is your little sandbags going to do? Nothing. Nothing. You're going to get washed away in the storm. And this is exactly the language that the Scripture is going to use. It's going to say, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. If you're trusting in rules and laws to save you or to make you a good person, 
you're lost. You're hopeless. So it's not just embrace your emotions and your experience, and it's not deny them. So what do we do then? When this, when these strong emotions, when we have these personal experiences that deny everything that we believe, when, when we go through life and experiences, what are we supposed to do? Well, the book of Psalms gives us a different answer, a third way. According to the Psalms, we're supposed to pray them. This is what Keller calls a gospel third way, but here, here's what it is. The Psalms are an invitation that God is inviting us to take our real and sometimes very raw emotions and experiences directly to Him. It's unedited, it's unapologetic, and it's unfinished. That God invites us to be completely, sometimes rudely, honest with Him. God portrays Himself as a safe person. But when our lives and our minds and our hearts are full of junk, they're just a mess. He does not ask us to go clean up and then come to Him. But He says, He's a safe person. Bring Him to Him. He'll help you clean it up. Psalm chapter 9 and verse 10. When great evil, when we see great evil, when, when in our experience we see something like this, like a young girl get deceived and sold off into forced labor, and yet we believe in a God who is all sovereign, what do you do with that type of thing? Well, Let's look at Psalm 9 and 10 together. And these two Psalms, the reason I'm putting them together is in that in the original, um, in the original, some versions of this Bible, of the Bible, you'll see that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually considered one Psalm. So in the ancient Greek version, it was one Psalm. And if you, uh, if you guys ever pick up a Roman Catholic Bible, you'll notice that this is actually considered one Psalm. So in their Psalms, every Psalm after this would then be one off in their numbering system. They have 149 instead of 150 in the Roman Catholic Bible. Just, just so you know, there's good reason for doing that because when you look at these two Psalms, they clearly, clearly go together. But there's good reason why the ancient Hebrews actually divided them. Because they're clearly, clearly different. So watch this. Verse 1. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. A morning like this morning. You wake up, the sun shines in, and it just warms your face. You hear your children laughing in the background. Your, your robe is warm around you. You got an extra hour of sleep last night. You drank your coffee, and you actually taste it. You are fully present in that moment. And this is what your heart tells you. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, Most High. That at that moment, there's just something erupts in you. It's worship. It's beautiful. You, you have everything that you've been taught all your life. Everything that you know about God, you experience it at that moment. It's not only intellectually true, but it's true to you in that moment. You can taste and see that God is good. And you have utter confidence that no matter what's going to come this week, no matter what, you can trust Him. And look at this. Bad things are coming this week. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. But it doesn't matter if my enemies are coming. Because I've got God. 
For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have set on your throne judging justly. You've rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You've uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. Anyone who comes against me when I'm with you, well, they're doomed. You know that you know that you know God personally at this moment. Verse 7. The God that you know, He reigns forever. He is a king and He's established His throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And here it is, verse 10. Those who know you and I know you, Lord, will trust in you. To anyone who really knows your name, who knows who you are, They can't help but love and trust you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Now, I want you to hear this. This is that moment when you're you're warm and and, and you're blessed and everything in that moment is true to you. This is absolutely true. This is both of these are a psalm of David. This is the first half. And in that moment, you've met God. You've trusted Him. You've known Him. You're absolutely confident in Him. And this, just to... Just to unpack how big this is for David, uh, something that you can't necessarily see in English is that this is written as an acrostic. Do you guys know what an acrostic is? Do you remember? Think um, maybe 7th or 8th grade. I don't know. When do you do acrostics? Acrostic is, is a poem in which every section or every line begins with a letter that if you put the first letter of every line together, it either spells something or it says something that has part of a broader message. So let me give you one famous example of an acrostic just so we're on the same page here. Uh, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. Okay, so here's a couple of early Christian carvings of fish because that was a Christian symbol, which we'll get to in a minute. But it just, it literally just means fish. Ichthus means fish. But the reason it became an early Christian symbol is because if you take each one of the letters, Jesus Christus Theos Huyos Suter, it's um, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. The ichthus... The Greek word fish became this this one word statement of what we believe as Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so early Christians would then put these symbols of a fish outside their house to say we're Christians. And it was kind of the secret language. So during the persecutions, they could say we're Christians and no one would know except the Christians who knew what that meant. Others just thought they were fishermen. So today we have this, (laughs) right? That's what it is. It's become a symbol of of Christian belief. In this text, what we're going to see is that throughout Hebrew Bible, uh, and here's a list, Psalm 25, 34, 111, 112, 119, 145, several times in Lamentations and in Proverbs 31, just to name a few, we have acrostics. And all of these acrostics are a peculiar type of acrostic, though. They're the alphabet. So it's A, B, C, D, E, F. But what they do is the reason the reason they would do this in alphabetic format. So let me give you an example. Proverbs 31. This guy is talking about how great his wife is. So when he wants to talk about how great his wife is, it's not enough to say, you know, she's really great. Instead, he says, let me go through every letter of the alphabet to tell you how great she is. A, she's awesome. B, she's beautiful. C, she's creative. Okay? So you get the idea. He's going through every... So it shows this totality. 
on the other end of things, Lamentations, four different, three different times, there's, there's acrostics in there all the way through the alphabet. Do you know how sad I am? A, B, C, D. He goes through the entire alphabet to say how sad he is. How he's lamenting. So here, when David in Psalm chapter, chapter 9 and 10, when he starts an acrostic, how much am I praising God? I could go through every letter of the alphabet. And in Psalm chapter 9, he gets through letters A through K. It's actually Aleph through, um, what is it? Um, yeah, he picks it up Aleph through Kaf. So I could, I could teach you the Hebrew alphabet. If you want to learn that real quick, we could do Aleph, Bait, and Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and Fire. Okay. Enough of that. But then in verse, chapter 10, verse 1, he starts it up. He goes all the way through K, and then he picks up L, Lamed. But listen, at this point, this psalm, everything to this point, Psalm 10 picks up the same theme, the same song, the same author, the same acrostic, but something's different. Listen to this. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? At this moment, you're like, what is going on, David? Just a minute ago, you were raptured. You were sitting there snuggling in the sun with your children laughing in the background. And now here you are. You sound like you're, you've been listening to the fray too long. Where were you when everything was falling apart? When all my days were spent by the telephone that never rang? All I needed was a call. And you found me. Lost and insecure, you found me lying on the floor, surrounded. Why do I read those words to you from the fray? Because this is a song that is sung all the time through the Psalms. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why have you left me suddenly? Something in his life went from this beautiful moment of trust to he has seen something so awful, so wicked. He's seen something that he can't unsee in his life. Have you had one of those moments where it was so shocking that you're not sure if your faith is ever going to be the same? You don't even know how God could possibly be in that moment. David's going to describe it starting in verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He who caught... Who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He's celebrating his own wickedness. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there's no room for God. This man never, ever thinks of God. His ways are always prosperous. His ways are always prosperous. This evil man, nothing he does fails. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all of his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy. I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and his lies, threats, trouble or evil and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait in the village from ambush. He, he murders the innocent. Watching in secret for his victims, he lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He drags the helpless, drags them off in his nest. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God 
has forgotten. He covers his face and sees nothing. That God is absent. I can do whatever I want. I will never be held accountable. Okay, so we're sitting in church right now, so I think I should mention the fact that um, what we just heard David said is largely wrong. Just take verse 5, for example. His ways are always prosperous. The evil man's ways are always prosperous. I mean, I start listening to this, and halfway through, in in my, you know, when I'm in my happy place, and I'm sitting there snuggling, and I want to read a psalm and have a, a beautiful moment of prayer with God, and I pull out Psalm 10 and I read this, I want to have a fight with David and say, David, get a grip, man. Did you read what you just wrote in Psalm 9? What about Psalm 1 that we did just two weeks ago? No, the wicked are like chaff that the Lord blows away. What about Psalm 46 that we did last week? The Lord is our refuge and strength. I mean, how do you even deal with that? Come on, David, get a grip. But of course, David already knows all this. And most of us already know all this. But that's not the point. The point is that David has seen something that he can't unsee. He's seen something horrible. He has seen the God-hating, evil people are having their way with weak and helpless people. He's seen little girls sold into forced labor. He's seen children trafficked like animals. He's seen orphans deceived and trapped. And he's seen rich people literally get away with murder. His heart's reeling and he's just trying to cope with it at all. So the question that David's asking, that I think we need to ask, that God calls all of his people to ask right here, how can my faith in an all-good, all-powerful God survive in a world when evil seems unstoppable? How can I believe that this world is actually ordered by God when everything seems chaotic and unfair? And I want you to notice, I, I want you to hear something that you can't necessarily see in the English. Is that, and in the first, first chapter, we see A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, N, P, M, O. That it started at verse 2 when he goes into this rant about how evil is winning the alphabet falls out of order because at that moment it feels like life is completely chaotic. There is no order in life anymore. This order is all messed up because at this point life is all messed up. And then in verse 12, he takes his eyes off the evil and looks again to God and says this, Arise, wake up God, do something about this. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself he won't call me to account? And David's sitting here pouring out just exactly how he feels. Unfiltered, unedited, in some places just wrong. But through this, coming to God with it, and through this darkness, Faith breaks through and once again he's able to confess what he knows is true even though it doesn't reflect his experience at that moment. And the alphabet order starts up again. 
But you, O Lord, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. That, that once he's, he's poured his heart out to God and he starts to realize, he starts, everything comes into perspective about who God really is. That he can once again believe what he always knew to be true, that he can put his awful experiences in light of what is true regardless of his experience. And now knowing what's true about God again, he does call God to act. He says, break the arm of the wicked man and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. Break his arm. Admittedly, this sounds a little brutal, a little unchristian. Uh, it's important to note two things. One is the arm does have a metaphorical meaning. So it's your strength. So he's saying break the strength or the power or the influence of these wicked people that destroy their power so that they can no longer do this. Um, however, from the rest of the Psalms and even from this Psalm, it is suggested that at that moment, David probably literally wished that their arms were broken. This gets a little awkward and a little uncomfortable. It's hard to cheer David when he's like, break their arms. Psalm 58, smash their teeth. Is that okay? In, in another couple of weeks here, I'm going to address the Psalms that are about anger and hatred. So we're going to have to set that aside, but I do want you to recognize that David is being completely honest here with God. He's not trying to hide the fact that he really hates these people. That there really are times when David and you and I wish that people's arms were broken. And rather than hide that, he brings that to God. And having tr entrusted his doubts and rage to God, he finally gets everything in a bigger perspective. And this is the end of the psalm. It says, the Lord is king forever and ever, just like he said in Psalm 9. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O oh Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to the cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth, or in the old translations, who is mere mortal, may terrify no more. How can my faith in an all-good, all-powerful God survive in a world where evil seems unstoppable? This psalm doesn't necessarily answer it. It just puts it in perspective. That if you cry out these problems in your heart to God, that when you meet God, you can be satisfied in Him. You can be satisfied to trust Him even when it does, His plan doesn't look clear to you at that moment. That David realized that, that God is slow to judge evil people does not mean that He will not judge them. Look, the Lord is King forever and the nations will perish. They will be held accountable. That even if it's not today and even if it's not in my lifetime, that I can trust that God will fulfill his word. That just because God doesn't provide immediate physical help for someone doesn't mean that they aren't protected and loved by God. One of my favorite passages on this is in Ezekiel. When all these really good people are dying. And Ezekiel cries out to God, what's going on? And you know what God says? He says, oh, they're the ones that I'm, I'm having compassion on. I'm letting them die so they won't have to go through what's about to happen. That God sees a bigger perspective than we see. 
Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to listen to this. He's talking about in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. This is a picture of the guy that David just said, I hate, I want his arm broken. And they're going to say, they're going to say, where's this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died. Everything has gone on since the beginning of creation. You know what they're saying? They're saying Jesus isn't going to judge us. God's not going to save you. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want in this life. And, and he does come down to the fact that God will ultimately judge him. But listen to this first. Do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I want you to understand this, that if God immediately judged those who were evil, then you and I would have been destroyed a long time ago. But in his grace, he waited for us. He offered us his son that we could come to know him and believe him. Because God ultimately doesn't want to destroy the evil people. He wants to destroy evil people by making them his people. By destroying an evil person, how is God glorified? By destroying an evil person or by saving, converting, and transforming an evil person like you and me into his own child, by adopting us into his own family, by giving us his own spirit and his own love. None of us deserves this treatment. And it is absolutely unjust in one sense that we should become, that any evil person should be forgiven that we should be forgiven. And it would be totally unjust if Jesus Christ hadn't died on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. That we worship a God who is all-powerful and all-good. That he is all-powerful and yet he is all-good and longs even for those evil people to be saved, to be rescued. Psalm 9.10, for those who know your name, those who know you personally, will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Uh, another way of saying this would be this. We know that our God is sovereign. And we can trust him. No matter how evil things get. Pray with me.